some memories really never completely die. And uh, we may forget them for a while, lose track of their timing. And yet we see, see or hear something or read something that usually tweaks those memories into existence again. And if we're honest with ourselves and unafraid of probing a little, we usually learn something from those things. Something I read in my study on the Holy Spirit awakened such a, such a memory. And it was one recollection which I think most of us would rather choose to forget, yet it brings into focus, as I begin to close this series on the Holy Spirit, how much we need the Holy Spirit by our side, if nothing else, just to comfort us. It also brings to mind how much the Holy Spirit himself desires us to acknowledge his presence next to us. Too often, I think, you and I can forget him. Way too often. Now, the memory is about 24 years old now. And most of us don't realize how fast time has passed since the space shuttle Challenger exploded on Tuesday January 28th in 1986. You realize it's been that long? 1986, killing all seven crew members on board. Tragedy. One that will stay with us for a long, long time. Now at first, NASA tried to maintain that all the members died instantly. But later investigations proved this false. According to one source, they were awake and they were aware that something was happening. Certain news organizations sued NASA under the Freedom of Information Act in order to get transcripts of those last few moments. Now, I have read some of those transcripts. However, during my study, something that was leaked to the press and published in a newspaper article many years ago piqued my attention. In those final moments, standing at the threshold of eternity, one of the crew members is reported to have said to another, perhaps quietly, maybe even calmly, give me your hand. Factual or fanciful? Whether you believe the reports or not, the idea is a powerful one, and I want you to think about that thought. It's a powerful idea, and it's a comforting one. Give me your hand, one of them said. As one journalist wrote, the phrase is lovely, holding it as it does all we can offer one another in love or friendship or at the hour of our death, all and enough about that phrase, all and enough. It's exactly the phrase that describes what the Holy Spirit offers us in the way of help, guidance, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, inner assurance, perfect acceptance, spiritual power, and eternal security. Give me your hand, he says. And you will have my seal of protection. You will have the ability to handle the stress of life. The ability to be spiritually, physically, and emotionally free from sin's bondage. Give me your hand, the Holy Spirit says, and I will teach you the way. Show you the truth. Fill you with confidence and empty you of anxiety. Give me your hand, the Holy Spirit says, and I will get you home. Comforting thought, isn't it? 
As I bring this series on the Holy Spirit to a close this week and next, that, I believe, is what he invites each one of us to do. Take his hand. And hopefully throughout these messages you have discovered something exciting about the Holy Spirit's ministry. Hopefully you've learned some things you never knew before about the Holy Spirit. Now I realize that there's no way to cover everything there is to know about the Spirit's ministry in 15 or 16 messages. It would take a lifetime. It does take a lifetime. But my original purpose was not to exhaust the many facets of the Holy Spirit, but to expose you to His fiery light and that that exposure would not only ignite a desire in you to fly closer to the flame, to borrow a phrase from Chuck Swindoll, but to step out and bear fruit for Him. And there is no need to fear getting burned by flying closer to His flame. As I said in the very first message, and I don't know if you recall or not, but I repeated it enough times, you probably will find it familiar. The Holy Spirit will never lead us anywhere but closer to Jesus. You remember that? Now our job is to keep in step with Him. Give me your hand, He beckons. The question is, have you taken hold of it yet? Have you? Because stepping out in the Spirit means taking hold of His hand. And it's time that we did. So today and next week, I want to close this series by leaving you with a few important reminders of some of the things we've studied and hopefully to encourage you to go deeper with the Spirit. Number one, His faithfulness endures. So do not fear. Don't fear. Turn your Bibles to John 14. We're going to look at a number of different passages this morning, not one specific one. But John chapter 14, verse 15 through 18, if you want to follow along, it's on the screen as well. Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. Now, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. One of the things I get from this passage of Scripture is that we're secure in his presence. We're secure. In his presence. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, baptized into his body by his spirit, let me make this statement. You will never, ever, I repeat, never be abandoned by him. Let me say that again. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, born of the spirit, you will never, ever, ever be abandoned by him. Jesus said he will be with you forever. Forever. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to us after Pentecost is extremely different than his ministry in the Old Testament to the Old Testament saints before Pentecost. Now I want to kind of show you this a little bit. In the Old Testament, the presence of the Spirit was selective and temporary. He would come upon people 
to empower them for special service. Now we read in the Old Testament that he came upon people such as Moses, the 70 elders with Moses, Joshua, Bezalel, Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, Saul, David, etc., etc. But he didn't indwell them on a permanent basis. At any time, and often in the case of sin, God would remove the Holy Spirit's presence and power from a person. Now, the perfect example of this is King Saul. I'd like you to turn in the Old Testament to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Verse 1. First Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, Saul, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? Now skip down to verse 5. He's giving Saul instructions now on what he's going to do now that he's anointed him. Afterward you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them. And they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. Notice that. And it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. That's what's called being led by the Spirit. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt sacrifices and offerings, peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. And then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. Perfect description of what the Holy Spirit does when he comes upon a person. God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. It was confirmed. And when they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets that the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Clearly, something happened to him and people noticed the difference. Now skip over to 1 Samuel chapter 16 for a moment. So the Spirit is now upon Saul. He's into, he's, his heart has been changed. He's prophesying with the prophets, clearly being led by the Spirit. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. However, as you know, if you've read the Old Testament in these few chapters in between 1 Samuel 10 and 1 Samuel 16, Saul went his own way. He didn't always follow the Spirit. He, he in fact, disobeyed what the Spirit told him to do, and he ended up sinning, sinning grievously by offering burnt offerings, which he was not allowed to do as a priest. Now the Lord said to Samuel in verse 1 of 16, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. What's happening here? 
Samuel is now going to go and anoint David as king because Saul proved himself unworthy. And so they go through all this process of parading Jesse's sons before Samuel. Finally, David comes. And in verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Verse 14, What's it say? Now the Spirit of the Lord, what? Departed from Saul. Sad statement. Very sad statement. Departed from Saul. Listen to what David prayed in Psalm 51. Even David witnessed this kind of thing when he saw the Spirit be taken from Saul. After David sinned grievously by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband or having her husband murdered, in the midst of his confession, some of those beautiful words of this prayer of Psalm 51 that David wrote, he pleads with the Lord that the Lord not remove the spirit from him. Look at Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. How many of you have prayed that psalm before? Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me, David says. I want to tell you something right now you may not agree with me on. I challenge you to study the Scriptures in the New Testament about it. What David just prayed do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. That cannot happen to a New Testament believer. Can't happen. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's presence was associated particularly with service, not salvation. The presence of the Spirit today is universal and permanent among true believers. Through the baptism of the Spirit, we are placed in union with Christ and with His church once for all time at the moment of salvation. I challenge you to read 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 6, and Ephesians chapter 4. And find those verses that support that. We, as New Testament believers, are blood-bought, spirit-sealed, and glory-bound, guaranteed. Guaranteed. We are secure in His presence. Why do I say that? Because of this next point that I'm going to make. We are sealed with His promise. We're sealed with His promise. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Apostle Paul writes, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. How much more black and white can you get than that verse, huh? Great verse. A couple of verses. Let me read it to you out of the Good News Bible because I love the way that it, it renders it. 
And you also became God's people when you heard the true message, the good news that brought you salvation. You believed in Christ, and God put his stamp of ownership on you by giving you the Holy Spirit he had promised. The Spirit is the guarantee that, you, that we shall receive what God has promised his people, and this assures us, assures us that God will give complete freedom to those who are his. Let us praise his glory. Amen? Amen. The seal that Paul talks about here is an indication of security. The Spirit is the token and the proof and the distinctive mark that a believer belongs to God. Amen? He is the down payment, the guarantee that God's promise to deliver us home safely and on time will be fulfilled. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, receive this guarantee according to this text at the moment we received Christ, the moment we believed the good news of salvation. And nothing can nullify that promise. Because the fulfillment of the promise is completely dependent upon God's faithfulness, not us, right? We can be confident of this very thing Paul wrote to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you shall perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from his love and protection. No one is going to be able to snatch us out of the Father's hand, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27. If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the implied answer? No one. We have God's personal mark of authenticity. The Spirit is his stamp of ownership upon us, his signet, his seal that we have his divine approval and protection because we are in Christ by faith. Amen? The Spirit's like God's engagement ring to us. Right? Only it's not sketchy like in human terms. Because engagement's in human terms terms can be broken, right? Let me tell you a little story about a man named Lefkos Haji who proposed to his girlfriend in London, England. And he wanted to take a novel approach to presenting the engagement ring, and so he hid the $12,000 ring. That's a nice ring. <laughs> really nice ring. He hid the $12,000 ring in a helium balloon and invited her to pop the balloon as he popped the question. Problem is, just as he proposed, a gust of wind caught the balloon and carried it away. This is a true story. And the ring was still inside it. Haji spent two hours chasing in his car all over London as this balloon floated high above the buildings in London. And he never got it. Never got it. Haji says he's now in the doghouse. You think? My fiance won't speak to me until I get her a new ring, quote, unquote. Just imagine if you were a homeless person lying on a park bench, <laughs> out of the sky, $12,000 diamond ring hits you in the head. Listen, the Holy Spirit as an engagement ring, this kind of thing is not that sketchy. God gave us the Spirit. 
He sealed us in the Spirit. His stamp of ownership is on us. It will not be taken. He will not be taken away. We will never have to pray the prayer of David in Psalm 51. Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit away from me. Why? Because he already promised he wouldn't. Through the sealing ministry of the Spirit, God confirms to us some of the most astounding, astounding words in the Bible about those who belong to God. In fact, they come from the Old Testament. Apply this to your life as a believer. Just imagine in your mind's eye, God speaking these words to you in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 to 3. Close your eyes now and and imagine God speaking these words to you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you walk through and pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Those great words. See, we've got reserved seats, folks. We're going home. Someday. Signed, sealed, delivered. We're His. You can count on it. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 through 20. When people take an oath, this is why. You can turn there if you'd like to. When people take an oath, the writer's talking about faith here, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. Well, God also bound himself, the writer says, with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given us both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can take new courage, for we can hold on to his promise with confidence. This confidence is like a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. You should underline that. It leads us through the curtain of heaven into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us and he has become our eternal high priest. An anchor for your soul. That's what the Holy Spirit is. That's what God's promise is. I read uh, author Steve Farrar in his book Standing Tall said that the mighty Niagara River, and how, how many of you have been to Niagara Falls? Pretty awesome place, isn't it? This mighty Niagara River plummets over some 180 feet at the American Horseshoe Falls. But before the falls, there are violent, turbulent rapids up above. And farther upstream, however, where the river's current flows more gently, boats are actually out there. And they navigate around. And just before the Welland River empties into the Niagara, a pedestrian walkway spans the river over there. And supposedly posted on this bridge's pylons is the warning sign for all boaters. Do you have an anchor? And the next sign is, do you know how to use it? (laughs) 
Because you can get to the point of no return. Where the currents are so strong, it will pull you over the edge. There's no way you're getting back. I want to tell you, scripturally speaking, the Holy Spirit, according to these verses, is our anchor. He is our hope. He is our seal. He is our anchor. His faithfulness still endures, so do not fear. That's the promise. That's the promise. But here's the warning. His frustration still builds, so don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Just because God is faithful doesn't mean that we can take liberties and fool around with his grace and live any old way we want to. He may always be there for us, but he may not always be pleased with us. Here's an aspect of the Holy Spirit that we usually don't talk much about. We try to avoid it, and the reason is painfully obvious. It indicts all of us at one point or another because we can sin against him. We can sin against the Holy Spirit. In a number of different ways, by the way, according to the scriptures, I found at least six different biblical passages describing ways in which we violate the Holy Spirit's person and character. There may even be a seventh one there that I'll bring out next week. But these are sins. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you know that the Holy Spirit is a person, the second person of the triune God, and he's not just an impersonal force, right? He has a mind, he has emotions, and he has a will, just like you and me. And we can violate every single one of those things. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the seriousness involved when we engage in those violations. Let me begin to list them for you. I'm not going to get through all of them this week. I'm just going to start with the first one. He can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Ephesians chapter 4, if you're there in the book, verse 30. Look at what it says. Paul writes, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Sorry, I included verse 29. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I love the way J.B. Phillips translates this verse. He said, never wound the Holy Spirit. He is, remember, the seal of God upon you of your eventual full redemption. Now, grieve in the Greek language is a strong, strong word. Surrounding that word are weighty emotions, heavy emotions, pain, hurt, sorrow, distress, if you've ever had to deal with the loss of someone close to you, either through death or divorce or, a, or desertion, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know how that feels inside. You know the pain of betrayal, the hurt. It just wrenches your gut inside. Jesus felt that full range of emotions when he went through the pain, distress, and abandonment of the cross and the emotional suffering that went along with that. Now, to grieve the Holy Spirit 
is to do the same exact thing to him, to wound him personally and deeply. It's to break his heart, really. The Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, is grieved by all sin which is contrary to the truth. I think all sin causes God sorrow and pain, don't you? But when it occurs in the lives of his own children, those who are intimately connected with him through Christ, I think that breaks his heart even worse. The heart of his son and the heart of his spirit. So how do we grieve or wound the Holy Spirit? Because whatever violates God's will grieves his spirit. I'd like you to look at the context a little deeper here in Ephesians chapter 4. Look with me at verse 17. I'm going to read down through it. Verse 17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, Paul says, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside that old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. And then let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. You understand from that context a little bit more now about what he's talking about? What kinds of things grieve the Holy Spirit according to this text? By the way, here's a little aside, free of charge this morning. If every Christian read through these verses that I just read through before they posted something on Facebook and acted accordingly, that site might provide a greater sense of hope to the internet world, don't you think? I'm thinking about doing a short series, sermon series called Facebook and Ephesians 4. What do you think? <laughs> now I'm on Facebook. And I see everything that everybody writes that are friends with me. And sometimes I wonder, don't they know I'm reading this? <laughs> what kinds of things grieve the Holy Spirit? 
We grieve him when we lie instead of speak the truth according to this text. When we vent our anger unbiblically, when we steal instead of share, tear down others instead of build them up, when we treat our spouses poorly, ignore our kids repeatedly, gossip over the phone shamelessly, hedge on our taxes secretly, cheat on our spouses callously, refuse to forgive others unrepentantly, harbor bitterness intentionally, withhold compassion apathetically, indulge our passion selfishly when we get slack on our commitments, fail to give of our time, fail to give of our money, fail to use our gifts. We grieve him when we suck up to the world and fall back into some wrong behavior and become a little more indifferent to sin. That's how we grieve him. We bring him sorrow when we inwardly rationalize like this. I know I shouldn't be doing this right now. But I'm forgiven. So I'm going to do it anyway. And deal with it later. Now don't laugh because you'd be surprised at how many of us rationalize that in our minds. You know what that does? That cuts his heart open. That's cheap grace. And he's deeply wounded by that. And you know what else? Sometimes you and I can feel it, can't we? We can feel it when the Holy Spirit is grieved. We can feel it in our souls. We can feel it in our gut. There's this empty feeling inside and we know, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit is hurting. That we've grieved Him. But here's the dangerous piece. Here's the dangerous piece. If we don't quickly get it on back, on track, we don't get it back on track when we're feeling that. The optimum word here is repentance. We not only grieve him, but then we take the next step down the ladder and we begin to resist him. Let me give you this, the sins as I see them descending the ladder because I'm going to quit now. And we're going to talk about the rest of these next week and then also some positive stuff at the end. But I want to leave you with these things just so you can think about it. He can be grieved. He can be resisted. He can be lied to. He can be quenched. He can be insulted. And then there's this sin that's called the unpardonable sin by Jesus called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is that? And have you committed it? Or can you commit it? We'll answer those questions next week. I want you to think about those things as you go through the week and review Ephesians chapter 4, if you would. Spirit says to us, give me your hand. He says it to believers and he says it to non-believers alike. My prayer for you is that you'll take it. We should all take it and let, us lead, let him lead us closer to the Savior. Because the Holy Spirit will never lead us anywhere but closer to Jesus.
want to leave you with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, an old London preacher who packed houses with his exposition of the Holy Scriptures centuries ago. Common, he says, too common is the sin of forgetting the Holy Spirit. This is folly and ingratitude. As God, he is good, essentially. He is good benevolently, tenderly bearing with our waywardness, striving with our rebellious wills, quickening us from our death and sin, and then training us for the skies as a loving nurse fosters her child. He is good operatively. All his works are good in the most eminent degree. He suggests good thoughts, prompts good actions, reveals good truths, applies good promises, assists in good attainments, and leads to good results. There is no spiritual good in all the world of which he is not the author and sustainer. They who yield to his influence become good. They who obey his impulses do good. They who live under his power receive good. Let us revere his person and adore him as God over all, blessed forever. Let us own his power and our need of him by waiting upon him in all our holy enterprises. Let us hourly seek his aid and never grieve him. And let us speak to his praise whenever the occasion occurs. The church will never prosper until more reverently it believes in the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father in heaven, May we heed the words of this statement of a preacher from long years past. But more importantly, may we heed the words of your Holy Spirit in the Scriptures that not only comfort us, but they also warn us. And it's a warning that will save our lives, that will foster holiness in our souls and that will lead us closer to Jesus. Father, speak to us clearly and may we have ears to hear for I ask it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.